0: As we've been talking about the the life of Jesus, in many ways we're we're slowly following or quickly following uh, through the gospel uh, of Matthew. Because in Matthew chapter 1, he talks about Jesus' genealogy, and there's a really quick, it's barely a sentence that actually mentions that he was born. But Matthew uniquely goes in chapter 2 to talk more about the wise men, about Mary and Joseph and Jesus as they flee to Egypt to escape Herod, uh, and then finally return to Nazareth. In chapter 3, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus coming and being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Uh, Chapter 4 then continues uh, as Jesus uh, goes into the desert to be tempted uh, after having fasted 40 days. He begins his ministry by calling the first of what would become uh, the 12 apostles. Now, disciples are an important part of Jesus' ministry. Think of them as apprentices or or students. It's not something actually new in the Bible. The Old Testament prophets also had uh, their disciples. They were called sons uh, of the prophets. Now, Jesus had hundreds of disciples or followers. Wait a minute, I thought he had 12. Well, he had 12 that he specifically pulled out of them to be apostles. Now, those apostles would be the eyewitnesses of his teachings and his mighty miracles and his death and resurrection. He would fill them with the Holy Spirit. They would be sent to be his witnesses. Uh, Their teachings and writings would be the foundation for the New Testament uh, and the New Testament church. uh, And the kingdom of God would begin to grow. But it all starts here with Jesus. And as Jesus begins his earthly ministry Matthew notes that he specifically did two things. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This becomes an important part uh, of the theme of Matthew as he describes Jesus' ministry. What is Jesus doing? Well, his methods that he's employing to prepare these disciples is really twofold. The main methods that he uses are teaching, often in parables, and miracles. Our reading this morning from Matthew chapter 9 is one of those moments where both are happening. Matthew uh, again wants to drive home the point that he actually concludes uh, later in Matthew chapter 9 again when he says Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and healing every disease and affliction. So let's look at those two. Let's look at teaching uh, and healing. Teaching was a very important uh, part of Jesus' ministry. Right after, he calls uh, the first of the disciples uh, in Matthew chapter 4, and lots of people begin to follow. What does he do? He sits down on the mountainside. They're probably actually standing or maybe sitting in front of him. And he begins to describe what discipleship looked like. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It goes all the way through uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5, chapter 6, most of chapter 7. But Jesus actually doesn't stop there. His pattern was that as he would come to a town, he would teach in the synagogue on the Saturday, on that Sabbath day, and then spend the rest of the week uh, teaching in the city squares, visiting people's homes when they might invite him there. When he would travel to Jerusalem for the festivals, he would teach in the temple courts. And when Jesus taught, what is he teaching? Well, he's focusing on God's tremendous grace and love for all sinners, his full and free forgiveness, which requires nothing from us. Now, parables are one of the tools with which Jesus would teach. Remember the old Sunday school definition of a parable? Did you ever hear it? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, it's actually very good as it describes what a parable is all about. Jesus would tell lively, memorable stories about everyday people living in everyday places, everyday events. A farmer scattering seed, a shepherd and his sheep, a man that has two sons, a king inviting his subjects to a wedding banquet. Normal everyday examples, but these everyday examples taught heavenly truths. Things that he wanted them to know about the kingdom of God. Truths about Uh, the life in the kingdom, which often turned their thinking kind of backwards. He'd speak about lowly and despised people receiving God's grace, while wealthy, well-respected people uh, would uh, often walk away empty-handed from God because they were content with their own works. They didn't want Jesus. So in today's gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is also teaching, and specifically in Matthew chapter 9 here, he's teaching in response to a question. Why do we, John's disciples and the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples don't fast? There it is, right? There's the opportunity to teach. Now, Jesus, when he teaches, often uses at least two tools. He uses two specifically right here. The first tool that Jesus liked to sometimes use was to answer a question with a question. I got to be honest, sometimes as a kid that drove me nuts, right? I asked you a question. What are you throwing a question back at me for? But what he's trying to do is he wants to get them thinking. So when they ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast, he asks a question back. Well, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What he's trying to do is teach about fasting. Fasting was a time for sorrow. It was a time for repentance. It was a time for sadness. Is this a time for sadness? Jesus is here. God, Emmanuel, God with us, is among them. That's not a time to fast. That's a time to celebrate. So Jesus wants to begin to, to turn their teaching around and begin to explain. Now, the second tool that he often used uh, in that teaching uh, was parables, object lessons. Not terribly different this morning from Ashland talking about Medicine or Band-Aid, right? It begins to teach about God's love and God's healing and how do we look to him. Likewise, here Jesus uses a few different examples. He uses a bridegroom. He uses wineskins. He also uses the example of unshrunk cloth and a patch, Now, maybe I can get wedding, and maybe I can get banquets. I eat pretty well. I'm not much of a sewer. Bonnie is the sewer in our family. But what I have learned is I've watched her. I know something happened. She uh, found some fabric the other day. She wants to make some new curtains, uh, some valances for our kitchen. We had some that looked great, but they're not long enough. She remembered she had more of that same fabric. But the first thing she did with the fabric, if she finds it in her bin of stored fabric, which we lost somewhere in all the moving stuff, we finally find it. The first thing she did, put it in the washing machine. Why? Was it dirty? I don't think so. But it was new fabric being joined to old fabric that had already been washed and sewn and used and probably washed again. If she joins the new fabric to washed fabric and then joins them and eventually washes, what's going to happen? It's going to shrink differently. It may even pull apart because you've got new fabric joined to old fabric. won't shrink the same. It'll mess everything up. What Jesus is doing uh, in our gospel lesson this morning is he's teaching that he is the author and the perfector of a new covenant. Something new is going on. New wineskins, new cloth, something new is happening. We're saved by his death and resurrection, not by obedience to the old covenant with all of its rules and regulations and and rituals that had to be fulfilled. Jesus is God in the flesh, God standing in their midst. So this is a time of celebration, not grief. This is a time of joy. This is a, a time to rejoice, not to mourn. God is doing something new. We're saved by his grace through faith, not through works of the law, on account of his death and his resurrection. And he needs to get his people listening to that new message. The message that points to him and salvation in him alone. And so hopefully that parable begins to challenge them to think differently. And that example, that that word picture begins to drive that message home. Now, the other great teaching tool that Jesus used was miracles, uh, which again showed God's kingdom and the Messiah that was now in their midst. Miracles do a number of things. They show uh, concern for our simple physical well-being, But they also show that per foreshow or foreshadow uh, that perfect eternal healing that will be ours one day when he returns on that last day and we're all brought to heaven. So, So what do we see? Jesus restoring sight to the blind. He restores hearing to the deaf. He restores mobility to people who had been paralyzed. He cured people with palsied limbs. Today, in our gospel reading, we heard about Jesus raising to life the the daughter of a ruler and in healing a woman who had touched his garment. So as a teaching tool, what did we learn about Jesus through these miracles? I think at least there's probably at least three things. First of all, What do we see in Jesus? But Jesus has power over creation, over our bodies, over nature. I mean, I can't just make something fix somebody's body. I can put the Band-Aid on. But as Ashton said, I can't fix it. God fixes it. Jesus is God, and the miracles are that proof that he has power over nature. He made it. He controls it and he can act according to those rules of nature or he can act outside of the rules because God can do anything. He made the rules and Jesus is bigger than all of this. So we see his power over nature. Miracles also show his love and compassion for us, for his people, for nature. Why in the end did Jesus heal? Because they were sick, and he loved them. Why did he feed the 5,000? Because they were hungry, and he loved them. In these simple ways, but not simple to us, we learn about the heart of God. After the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw all of these hurting people, when he saw all of these who were hungry, when he saw all of these people in distress, he hurt on the inside for them. He wanted that that something more. and He did something about it and it shows his heart for us. In doing that, what he's also doing is teaching us about the kingdom of God, that bigger picture. How does it work? Now, why was the daughter raised and the woman healed? Because they did the right thing, because these were perfect people who did everything just right, correct? Now, These are people just like us. But what we do know is it's a lesson about faith. Notice what the ruler says. How does he come? He says, come, lay your hand on her and she will live. He's already coming in faith. All he knows is that his daughter has died, but this man just has to lay his hand on her and she'll live. And he comes in faith, trusting that Jesus will do just that. Jesus turns, what does he say? He turns to the the woman and says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. She had to believe uh, in the power of Jesus. Otherwise, why in the world does she just want to touch his garment? She had faith. The ruler had faith in this Jesus and what he could do. Faith Knows who Jesus is and hears that invitation and responds. That's what faith does. Have you been invited? Did you hear the invitation this morning? We read it. The invitation from Isaiah to come. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How can I buy without money? Because God provides. Listen, eat, delight yourself, seek the Lord. All these beautiful invitation from a loving God who looks at us in need. It says, come. I've got it. I'll take care of it. I love you. I'm concerned about you. What about us? What about us who sit here this morning with needs and concerns? What do we hear about God and about you? What did he say? He said, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord when he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Return to the Lord. Because he loves you. He cares about your needs. He died for you. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Because our thoughts question. We wonder. We doubt. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God is always love, always hope, always peace, always joy. His grace covers you. His righteousness surrounds you. You can have confidence. You can even boast about the abundant hope that you have in Jesus. Because Jesus is Always faithful.